Welcome to the Stay Healthy Los Angeles podcast, aimed at helping you live an active, healthy, and enjoyable life in and around Los Angeles. Brought to you by Core by Design Clinical Pilates. And now, here's your host, physical therapist Emma Green. So on today's podcast, I have Dr. Shanak Patel, who uh, is a specialist in regenerative medicine and interventional orthopedics in Los Angeles and Orange County. So thanks for joining me today, Dr. Patel. Thank you so much for having me, Emma. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to speak with you. So um, we we met at a conference a couple of months ago, and uh, you were you were speaking at the conference, and I was very interested in the topic that you were discussing, um, and, and I know it can be of benefit to a lot of people, which is why I really wanted to get you on the podcast and, and talk to you about this, because I think we really need to kind of spread the word. So um, if you'd like to start by telling me a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a DO at Dr. Vasopathic Medicine. Um, I did residency training in physical medicine and rehabilitation, and I did a fellowship in sports medicine and interventional pain management. A little bit early on in my career, uh, actually when I was in medical school, I had learned a little bit about regenerative medicine. Things like prolotherapy and, and using a patient's own blood PRP uh, to treat various conditions. So I kind of um, sought that out on every step of my training, was really looking uh, to learn more about that. Um, so when I finished my training, I had the opportunity to uh, learn more um, and start working with an uh, international network called Regenex. And I have been doing regenerative medicine, uh, interventional orthopedics for the last four and a half years now. Okay, that's great. So, so regenerative medicine, what, what really is that? What does that term mean? Yeah, actually, you know, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the term regenerative <laughs> medicine. Um, quite frankly, there is regenerative medicine and then there's regenerative medicine. So, okay, you're going to explain the difference, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when we, when we talk about true regenerative medicine, there's a lot of research that's being done um, right now, for the last several years, um, uh, with using uh, what are, what's called pluripotent stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells, um, and and actually regrowing tissue. Um, you know, you may have heard of things like you know regrowing organs in a lab setting and things along those lines. Um, that's that's what I call true regenerative medicine. Um, that's still very very much so on the research front, essentially. Um, then yeah. there's then there's this kind of world of regenerative medicine that has gained in popularity over the past several years on the clinical side. Um, and, and I use kind of air quotes when I talk about this because in a lot of senses, it's not always actually regenerating tissue, um, but oftentimes improving structures, uh, improving the, the way structures function, uh, trying to prevent degeneration from getting worse things along those lines. And my specific interest in this field is, is with orthopedics, with musculoskeletal medicine. Okay. And so what drew you to this particular um, branch of medicine? What made you so interested in it? That's, that's a, a little bit of a long roller coaster of a story. <laughs> um, but ultimately, uh, I, was, I was always interested in musculoskeletal medicine. Um, I'm uh, somewhat of an artist I've drawn since I was a little kid. So I've always been interested in the musculoskeletal side of things. Um, and when I started delving into medical school, 
I decided to be a doctor of osteopathic medicine because I really loved some of the tenets that, you know, osteopathy um, really focuses on treating the whole individual, um, you know, treating all aspects of the person. Um, and really, you know, osteopathy believes in the fact that the body has its innate ability to heal itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was learning more about that, I fell upon, you know, some folks that were using um, simple things like their body's own platelet growth factors um, or even things like sugar water for prolotherapy and getting the body to heal uh, without using uh, surgery or more invasive treatments. So that's really what attracted me to it. You know, I was interested in the musculoskeletal world as, as a baseline. And then I, I really got attracted to the body's ability to heal itself. Yeah, sounds good. So you've yeah. mentioned the term prolotherapy. What does that term mean to the average person on the street? How can you explain that to them? Sure. Um, so we talk about kind of the field of regenerative medicine as a whole. It, 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 on the clinical side, it started with this concept of prolotherapy. Um, prolotherapy stands for proliferative therapy. And the idea is that when we have some chronic injury going on, usually it's a ligament type injury, whether that ligament's been sprained. Think of your ankle, right? If you sprained your ankle as a kid and then you've sprained it again and you've sprained it again, you know, the ankle itself can be fairly loose. The ligaments are generally loose in that setting, but the body's not registering that as a new injury. That's kind of this chronic stagnant thing that there's no healing taking place there. Um, So the concept was made that if we inject something that can actually cause irritation to those structures, um, can that trick the body into thinking, all right, there's a new injury here, we should heal this, right? So um, prolotherapy, uh, what, what we use typically at this juncture is dextrose, which is a type of sugar water. And at the concentration of that sugar water, it actually causes some localized inflammation, some localized irritation, really some micro, microscopic cell death. Um, that causes, you know, this tiny bit of damage. And then the body's like, all right, we need to send growth factors there. We need to sell, send the local stem cells to that area. We need to cause that healing to take place. So that's kind of the concept behind prolotherapy. It's, it's been around for decades. Um, and there's been people that inject various different solutions. Um, the traditional prolotherapy has been used without any image guidance um, with, with palpation. Um, and there's been this kind of whole school of training um, by these docs named Hackett and Hemwall, um, who really um, uh, grew this school of, of being able to palpate um, or press on somebody's body and say, okay, these are the structures that we need to inject. Um, more, more recently, with the advent of things like ultrasound and fluoroscopy x-ray guidance, we now use precise image guidance to see and, and inject specific structures. Okay, so when should somebody be considering prolotherapy? What would be uh, somebody who would really benefit from this type of technique? Yeah, I think prolotherapy could be beneficial for um, a few different things. First of all, the the research shows that prolotherapy can be beneficial for certain types of back pain conditions. Um, You know, when you talk about the sacroiliac joint as being a a culprit in terms of back pain. Um, Also, you know, various ligament injuries like the the ankle sprain that I talked about. Um, Mostly injuries or irritation, low-grade injury or irritation to ligament structures can be addressed with prolotherapy. 
Um, prolotherapy has its pros and cons, though. Um, you know, specifically that prolotherapy, it, it's, it's very early down the chain of healing, meaning we're causing a little irritation that's mm -hmm. tricking the body into sending the platelet growth factors, which then call the stem cells to the area. So it's very, very, um, you know, uh, early in the treatment kind of um, protocol. So it's, it's good for structures that have milder issues. Um, it's also good for structures that have good, adequate blood supply. Um, because if we can't, if we don't have good blood supply to these structures, we could cause irritation as much as we want to, but the body's not going to be able to send the healing platelet growth factors or stem cells or whatever to that area. So then for that reason, would, would that, would prolotherapy be something that could be used in something like tennis elbow where it's a tendon that is causing the issue? Potentially, uh, potentially. So tennis elbow, you're right, is a tendon. It's not a ligament um, that's causing the issue. It's, uh, you know, it's the outside of the elbow, the tendon that comes from the wrist extension. People whipping their wrist playing backhand tennis poorly, right? Um, right. But, but really, that, that is not, uh, people use the word lateral epicondylitis, meaning inflammation of that area. But it's typically not an inflammation, more of a uh, tendinopathy or irritation to the tendon or disorganization of the tendon. So theoretically, the prolotherapy could uh, be beneficial for that. It really comes to the extent of the damage to that tendon. Um, and, and with prolotherapy in general, since it is kind of a, a, a lighter weapon to use, so to speak, sometimes it takes multiple sessions over time in order to get a good outcomes. Okay. Um, so for, for something like tennis elbow, um, there's actually some pretty good, solid uh, research, uh, level one research that uh, recommends PRP and a specific type of PRP um, for uh, that, that tendinopathy that occurs there. Okay, so the first question I have to ask is, what does PRP stand for? <laughs> uh, so PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. Um, and platelets, uh, this is, a, this is how I describe it to all my patients. So if any of my patients are listening, this is, yeah, this right. is repetitive for you. <laughs> um, but when you cut yourself, um, the platelets are the thing that stops the bleeding, right? Right. Those platelets then, uh, release growth factors after they've formed the clot and they release growth factors over time. They actually release some growth factors that cause inflammation and then they release more growth factors that then decrease inflammation. So there are both pro and anti-inflammatory growth factors in platelets. Um, and there's also what are called chemotactic growth factors. So these are growth factors that call local stem cells and other cells to the area. So if you think about it, we have stem cells throughout our body, um, really in all of our blood vessels and in our bones, in our fat. There are stem cells of various types that live in these areas. Um, so the platelets actually will call those to the region of injury. So that actually is what, you know, kind of uh, causes the healing to take place, so to speak. So when you cut yourself, it's the platelets that are kind of starting that healing process. So we're able to take your blood and concentrate those platelets into a high, high concentration. And that's called platelet-rich plasma. Um, and that's, you know, when, when you talk about PRP and you talk about people that are doing it, it's all over the place as to what that PRP may mean in terms of what's in it, uh, the concentration of the platelets, whether there's red blood cells, white blood cells, 
various different stuff is in the platelets, and that's why not all PRP is uh, is is created equally. Um, but different PRPs may be more beneficial than others for specific circumstances. This is one of the big things that I really learned from you at the conference is. For, for, for me, as, as a healthcare professional, obviously I've heard of PRP. I have a, a basic understanding of what it can be used for. I had no idea that not all PRP was the same. You know, I had yeah. no idea that there were different concentrations and different cells in there. That, that was completely new to me. And so then that, that then takes me on to the fact that this must be so confusing for patients who are looking for answers to their questions when they can't even compare one type of PRP to another because there, there's such a discrepancy. How, yeah. how, do you, how do you explain that to patients? How do, how do they go about trying to navigate this, this area to find what they specifically need? So confusing. It's, you know, honestly, it is confusing, and, and quite frankly, it is confusing still to a lot of us that are in this field, you know, because the truth is, um, we're still learning, and, and right. this, is, this is inherently the problem, right, because PRP is not currently covered by insurance, so right. a lot of folks um, see this as, and a lot of clinics see this as an opportunity to do something uh, for patients, but they, if they're not specializing in this field, then they're not figuring out the exact nuances of what works for what condition, and that's when there are outcomes actually plummet. Um, so, you know, if the average person that's doing a PRP, average physician that's doing PRP injections might not even know what type of PRP they're injecting because they are, you know, just ordered X specific kit and that produces, you know, whatever product and that might not be appropriate for all things that they could be considering. So that's, that's also why the research is so all over the place when it comes to PRP. There's some areas like, um, you know, tennis elbow um, that we have some pretty robust research showing that, uh, that, that a high concentration of PRP uh, with no red blood cells but with white blood cells might be beneficial for true tendinopathy. Um, but, you know, looking at our internal data, if that tendinopathy becomes a tear, then we might want to take those white blood cells out completely. So we're still kind of formulating what is precisely beneficial for, for exact situations. And from the patient's point of view, that's, that's really hard to, to interpret. Yeah. Um, the biggest piece of advice that I have for somebody is if, if you have a, an orthopedic condition, um, it might not be the best idea to go to your, your general practitioner that's just doing PRP on the side, right? right. It, it might not be a good idea to go to your plastic surgeon that's doing PRP for the face and, oh yeah, I can also treat your knee, right? So that's the kind of thing that, that we need to start considering when we're doing these type of procedures. Um, I actually think it's a good thing, and, and, and people are going to be mad at me right now, but I think it's a good thing that's not currently covered by insurance because then I think people would start doing it for everything and anything and not using the correct techniques, using incorrect PRP, and, and then I think patients would suffer in the long run. I think that what the, the, the sentence you just said there, that is just phenomenal for 
for patients to take that from somebody who is a specialist in doing this particular technique. You know, everybody really needs to hear that. It's it's so true. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of people coming to me and saying, you know, what do you think about PRP? And I can give them my limited knowledge. But really, whenever we're considering any of these types of invasive procedures, we need to be seeing the specialist. And you need to be seeing the specialist who is doing these procedures all the time. And it's not just that, oh, I, and, and by the way, I do this as well. Yeah. It's, that's crucial. So, that, yeah, that's immensely helpful for sure. And, and in addition to that, not only doing these procedures all the time, but also collecting data, you know, saying, are these procedures working, right? Right, looking because at the outcomes. I, I see some websites out there that are like, you know, 95% of my patients get better. And I'm like, that's probably bogus because, you know, we, we track our data and we put that data available on our websites for people to see. And for some body parts, we're happy when over 50% of people get benefit, right? Because realistically, everybody's different. Yeah. And everybody has multiple different issues that are going on and not everybody's going to respond to the same treatment. Right. So we're still in that learning process. And the only way we can learn and grow is if we're collecting the data. So you know, if you're shopping around for these type of docs, it's one, important to make sure that they're specializing in this, and two, making sure that they're collecting their data, that they're analyzing it, that they're publishing it. All of that stuff is really important. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we talked about tennis elbow a little bit, and with regards to a change in PRP becoming a, a more popular option. Now, sort of in the olden days, it used to be the, the cortisone shots that typically yeah. people would get for tennis elbow. And I know that yeah. is still going on out there. What's your view on that? So I think uh, cortisone is an amazing and horrible medication all in one. Um, so there are specific instances where I think cortisone injections are perfectly fine. Um, but there are more and more instances where we're realizing that it actually can do more harm than good. Can you give um, me some examples? Absolutely. Um, so if somebody has sciatica and that person is young, otherwise healthy with no other medical issues, has an isolated disc bulge that's irritating a nerve and it's rip-roaring just freshly started, then perhaps a cortisone injection might be appropriate to calm down the inflammation of the nerve decrease the pain, and then allow us to do the appropriate physical therapy to strengthen the core and take pressure off of the area, et cetera, et cetera. However, that's a very, very limited population of people that, that, that present to us with nerve irritation or back pain, et cetera. Right, so um, with no other existing factors, right? That's exactly. That's the key thing, yeah. And that's the key thing, right? Most times when we see someone with a nerve irritation, they've got arthritis, they've got right. ligaments that are loose, they've got muscles that are uh, atrophied or not working properly, right? So all of those things need to be addressed. And that's why cortisone injections epidurally for those type of multifactorial conditions aren't the greatest. They only work for a couple months at a time, um, right. right? You're happy if you get three, four months of benefit, then you have to repeat the injection and repeat the injection. Now, the problem with repeating the injections is, especially if as we're getting older, especially if we have other medical conditions like uh, diabetes, these, these cortisone injections can actually make all of those conditions a heck of a lot worse. 
Um, you know, a single cortisone injection can make your blood sugar skyrocket. Um, right. Single cortisone injection in a postmenopausal female can cause osteoporotic fractures, right? Um, so these are important factors to consider as when we're thinking about cortisone injections. Now, for tendons like tennis elbow, at this point, it seems like cortisone injection should not be done, period. Um, because ultimately, the cortisone, um, a steroid, can actually damage the tendon, um, particularly if it's injected within the tendon. Um, and we, we don't see it as much with uh, tennis elbow, but I've seen cases, multiple cases at this point, patients that have uh, biceps tendon uh, irritation or tendinopathy in their shoulder um, and they get an injection of cortisone without image guidance, so not exactly knowing where it's going, right. and then that biceps tendon ruptures. Um, and we've, we've seen that in other areas. Um, I have seen it in the, in the tennis elbow in the past, but not, not as commonly. Um, right. But, but this, is, this is stuff to consider. This, the yeah. cortisone has side effects associated with it. So if you're going to get a cortisone injection in, in and around tendons, then ultrasound guidance needs to be there in order to make sure that we're doing things in a safe manner. Um, but quite frankly, those are the type of situations that, you know, if we have an, a better alternative like PRP um, or like other things like bone marrow stem cells, um, then, then is that a better option to actually improve the pain and potentially provide some healing there? Um, and I think in the right hands with the right approach with image guidance, that that is an option. So you, you just mentioned stem cells there. So there's so many different varieties of these injectables. It used to just be cortisone shot and that was it. And now there's PRP yeah. and there's prolotherapy and there's stem cells and there's so many different things. So what what is stem cells? What What does that involve and what can that help? So stem cells are the new kids on the block, so to speak. Um, right. Still, still been around for uh, a couple decades, at least in the, in the lab setting. Um, the, the stem cells that what I'm discussing are what are called mesenchymal stem cells. Um, and, and quite frankly, that's a misnomer as well. Um, basically, if you think about what, what, are, what are stem cells, um, stem cells, uh, when we think about stem cells, most people think about what are called pluripotent stem cells meaning that they can change into anything. Right. And that's the little guys that are in your embryos. Right? Yeah. When, when your fetuses and your body is changing, right, we, we, we go from semen and, and egg to, to all of a sudden we're proliferating all the way to hands and feet and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So those cells can literally change into anything. What they do is they go down specific lines. So there's the line called the mesenchymal stem cell that could change into bone, muscle, uh, uh, tendon, all of those structures. There are uh, hematopoietic stem cells that go down the blood lines. There's, uh, there's um, various different, essentially, stem cells, neuroendocrine stem cells that go down to the nerves and the endocrine organs and all these kind of different um, uh, types of stem cells that occur. Okay. So, the mesenchymal stem cells are what we use for orthopedic conditions. Um, but there's actually a lot of research that's, that's mixed in terms of whether these are actually stem cells or not. Um, we are able to get these stem cells from a few different sources. Uh, bone marrow is the most prevalent, easiest to get uh, source of 
stem cells. The other area that people get these stem cells from very commonly is the adipose, is the fat. Um, but the way that we are able to extract those stem cells, um, we have to follow certain guidelines. So the FDA um, says what is and is not allowed um, in terms of how we're able to get these stem cells. So from the bone marrow, we take that bone marrow out. We use a centrifuge to kind of get the different layers. And from that, we can extract the layers of stem cells. Um, and that is perfectly allowed by the FDA. Okay. Uh, what is not allowed with the bone marrow stem cells is if we take those stem cells and then grow them over multiple days or grow them over multiple weeks, that culturing of the stem cells is not allowed by the FDA. That's considered more than minimal manipulation, and that is illegal. So there are some circumstances in, in uh, research settings where folks are able to do that, but that is purely in a research setting. Um, there are some facilities that go uh, out of the country in order to do these type of treatments as well. Um, some have actually been shown to be safe, um, but it's, it's kind of outside of the U.S. at that juncture. Okay. Now, in order to actually get stem cells from fat, the only way to do that is to chemically digest the fat. Um, and that chemical digestion of the fat to liberate the stem cells that's considered more than minimal manipulation by the FDA. That's considered creating a drug, and therefore the FDA calls that illegal. Wow. So there are still a lot of clinics that are actually doing this, and this is called SVF, or stromal vascular fraction. Um, and the FDA is actually starting to, to shut down a lot of these clinics. Um, it has written letters. Uh, it's been in the news. It's been in the media. Wow. Um, because, quite frankly, the research is not as good for SVF as it is for bone marrow aspirate concentrate. Um, and a lot of these clinics are taking SVF and they're not only injecting orthopedic things, but they're also injecting it IV to treat somebody's Alzheimer's or their multiple sclerosis or their diabetes or whatever under the sun. And they're really not doing evidence-based medicine um, they're, they're loosely basing things off of uh, very, very early research and mm -hmm. quite frankly, taking advantage of patients. So yeah. we don't know if it's even safe. It may be. And shoot, it may be beneficial, but we just don't know at this juncture. Right. Um, and because that has exploded with something that is a chemical digestion that the FDA considers a drug, they're saying that that's illegal. Now, yeah. there are other treatments from the fat that are legal, um, but it's not technically a stem cell treatment, where you take the fat and you kind of pulverize it or micronize it, and that is considered a fat graft. Um, and, and there are some folks that are doing that, and that is legal um, per the FDA currently. Um, and, and, and there is some growing research in that that looks like it may be promising for certain orthopedic conditions. So like what? What, what are they doing with that fat graft? Why are they putting it? Um, so uh, there is some research so far uh, for things like rotator cuff tears, um, even for knee osteoarthritis. Um, it seems like there is some, some growing literature in, in some various different orthopedic conditions. Um, right now, I'm kind of, you know, trying to figure out the, per, the, the application that's most uh, appropriate. 
for yeah. that. Um, so I've trained how to do those type of procedures, but I haven't started doing them yet because I, I want to make sure that I'm doing it for the right cases. Sounds good. And again, I'm not covered by insurance. Yeah, the, none, none of these treatments are covered by insurance because, you know, as I mentioned with the PRP, with PRP being all over the place, right. um, but PRP being around for years, yeah. um, stem cells, whether it's adipose, graft, or if it's bone marrow stem cells, um, that's still, like I said before, the new kid on the block, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, there's still the research is still growing in that arena. Okay. Um, so with regards to stem cells, um, you're, you're using stem cells, you are doing the bone marrow graft and you're using stem cells. Are, are you using them in spinal conditions? What are you using them for? Yeah, so I, I use stem cells for um, a f several different types of conditions. Um, as far as the spine is concerned, um, more often than not, I'm using a patient's own blood growth factors, PRP and, and, uh, and okay. derivatives of PRP. Um, but there are specific spine conditions that I will use a, pati a patient's own bone marrow aspirate concentrate or the bone marrow stem cells. And the two major things are if there's more advanced joint arthritis um, or if there is a tear inside their disc within specific parameters. So um, the, the disc uh, is, is uh, not always a culprit when it comes to pain. Even disc bulges happen very commonly and have no pain associated with it. But sometimes a tear occurs in the disc and that can cause a lot of issues. Um, and um, there is a little bit of research that suggests that stem cells and even PRP uh, into the disc directly may actually be able to help the inflammation and pain associated with that. Um, now, none of these treatments are reversing disc degeneration, right. um, but improving the pain associated with the disc tear may actually, in fact, be possible. Um, same thing with the arthritis. We can't reverse the arthritis. We can't reverse the degeneration in that joint, but we may be able to provide some stability. We may be able to improve the pain and we may be able to try to prevent that arthritis from getting worse. Right, yeah. Is it, is it a procedure that could be done if somebody has had a spinal surgery in the past, say somebody has a fusion, are they still able to benefit from some of these injectables? Yeah, so you know, anytime any surgery is done, whether it's spinal or otherwise, it kind of puts a little bit of a monkey wrench into the situation, right? Uh, the, the anatomy is inherently uh, altered um, so we're not going to get as reproducible, as great results as, as somebody that has had no surgery. Um, but, it, but it is still possible. In fact, I've treated a lot of patients that have had prior surgeries and with, with some fairly significant benefit. So with a, a spine surgery, for example, a fusion, um, what we oftentimes see, I'll see a couple different varieties, either somebody that has had a fusion but still continues to have nerve irritation or some residual nerve irritation from the same area that the fusion has taken place, whether there's scar tissue there or whether the nerve damage was kind of uh, too bad um, that, that occurred. Um, and in those circumstances, using your blood platelet growth factors may actually be really beneficial. Um, I had a, a great patient and I could share you the the pictures on Instagram working on sell, uh, on, on publishing the case. Um, but essentially, uh, this patient had um, a motor vehicle accident, had a neck injury, had a fusion of two levels of his neck, had improvement of his symptoms down his arms, was doing really well. 
um, then had a re-injury to the neck. Um, the nerve became damaged. He had to have a repeat surgery, um, but he still had nerve damage. The muscles were still very atrophied or, or uh, decreased in size, and he had zero strength in certain muscles. Um, and we were, were able to inject uh, in the epidural space, the space that surrounds the nerves. Um, and once he started to get some sensation down into the arm, we actually injected directly into the muscles and we were able to regrow the muscles at a more rapid pace than the normal healing would be expected. Wow. So um, it was a pretty remarkable case. Not all cases are like that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it, a lot of factors were for us in that situation. Um, he did some intensive physical therapy, which was really, really necessary. Um, it was also a relatively uh, recent injury. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it wasn't this chronic nerve injury for years and years and years. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, those are the type of situations post-operatively we can help. Now with fusion, people also get things like adjacent segment disease. When you start to develop arthritis changes above and below, uh, the ligaments can get looser above and below the joints can get irritated. The disc can get irritated. Those are things that we can certainly treat as well. Um, but those also can be challenging in certain circumstances. Yeah, it, it seems like from what you're saying, a, a lot of the um, the best results come from when these um, injuries are most acute. So when when to get the the best result, you're looking at sort of the, the acute injuries. But I mean, what about people who have chronic pain? I mean, th there are people out there who have suffered for years and they've tried everything under the sun and you know a lot of them are now looking at some of these new procedures and wondering is that something that can help me what's we what's your experience with those types of patients yeah actually most of my patients fall into the chronic pain category um, and and I think this is where I, I want to differentiate regenerative medicine and regenerative medicine again yeah because when it's when it's more of an acute injury i think we have a better chance of causing healing to take place um whether it's nerve damage or whether it's um you know an acl tear in the knee um you know some partial and some full thickness uh, acl tears we can actually get them to heal without surgery um, but if that's a tear that took place 30 years ago and there's a ton of scar tissue that's already grown there, um, then that's not something that I think is realistic as far as true regeneration is, a, is, is to occur. Um, but on the other hand, um, can we improve pain? You know, can we improve the negative environment of the joint? Um, and, and the answer to that is, is most likely yes in a lot of situations. So... You know, when we have a chronic condition, let's talk about knee arthritis, right? Um, people get hung up on the idea that your cartilage is decreased with knee arthritis. Um, but there's argument as to whether the cartilage itself is actually the pain generator or not. Um, you know, we see a lot of patients that have no cartilage and have no pain associated yeah, with it, right? Absolutely. So the question is, what's causing the pain? And oftentimes when the cartilage is worn off, um, and we're putting abnormal pressure into the joint. So we have, if we have abnormal mechanics for whatever reason, um, and we're putting abnormal pressure into the joint, then, then there's excess pressure that takes place onto the bone where the cartilage is decreased. And over time, that bone reacts to that excess pressure. Sometimes that bone can become this kind of chronic bruised state. 
ultimately what that is, is that the local stem cells that live in the area are not working the way that they should be. So the local stem cells, when we think about what happens with an injury, right, if you twist your knee or if you twist your ankle and that swelling that occurs, that's all the local stem cells and, and other cells, macrophages, all these things coming to the area to, to clean out the, the damaged tissue and lay down the foundation for healing, right? So that's inflammation. That's healthy inflammation. Um, and that should come, but then that should go. Right. And what regulates that process partially is most likely the local stem cells that live in that area. So if the local stem cells aren't great, and we have that in a, in a joint that has more chronic and severe arthritis, then when you do put abnormal pressure into the joint and it gets inflamed or irritated, the local environment can't fight that inflammation. So instead of that inflammation coming and going, it comes and stays. And I, 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 again, sorry to all the patients of mine that are listening and hearing this again, but I, I say inflammation is like the demolition day of a home reconstruction. Um, you know, we're taking off the, the damaged kitchen cabinets in order to lay down new kitchen cabinets, um, but it should come and go. And if you get stuck in inflammation, now you're not only taking off the kitchen cabinets, but you're taking off the drywall too, right? So that chronic inflammation actually then makes the degeneration worse. So theoretically, the stem cells in this setting actually don't work as stem cells. Um, and this is not true regeneration that's occurring. They're not actually regrowing tissues, so to speak. Um, but what they're working or how they're working is what's called a paracrine effect. So the, these, these stem cells actually communicate with the local environment. They actually help activate the local stem cells and, and get that local environment to fight off the inflammation in an appropriate manner. So this is, this is such a hotly debated topic within my world that, that the person that actually named mesenchymal stem cells, this uh, doctor by the name of Arnie Kaplan, He's actually since then said, I don't want to call it mesenchymal stem cells anymore. He wants to call it medicinal signaling cells because they're not actually acting like stem cells. So I think that that is the situation for these chronic you know, conditions. When we're injecting your fresh stem cells to the area, it's a chemical effect. It's what's called the paracrine effect. That's how we can actually get improvement of pain and function in that region. When it's more of an acute injury, we might actually have true regeneration occurring in that area. Um, so that's kind of the debate right now, or are these MSCs working as stem cells or signaling cells? And the answer is probably a combination of both. Right. Yeah, that's really, it kind of kicks off the body's own natural process that has been going on. That's right? That's exactly right. That's, yeah. exactly. That's so interesting. So is there anything that patients should do before they get to the point of considering injectables? Because after all, it is an invasive procedure. What, what should they be doing beforehand? What should they be considering before they get to the point where they're thinking, okay, now I need to go with these injectables? That's a great question. And, and to, to answer that question, it's... Uh, 
basically when I see my patients, I talk to them from multiple angles. Um, you know, the, the truth is it is an invasive procedure, but it's a heck of a lot less invasive than a surgery, right? Absolutely. But more importantly than the invasiveness of, is, is how is it going to work? Um, and to me, if our body is not moving correctly, um, if our nutrition, our internal environment is not good, then we're setting ourselves up for a disaster with these interventional procedures, with these, these biologic procedures. So I could put stem cells till the cows come home into a joint that has arthritis or whatever it may be, but if we're walking at a weird angle, if we're not activating our butt muscle, so every step we take our knees moving inwards, then, then it's not going to work, right? Yeah. So when we do these stem cell treatments, and again, this is why we have to go to you know, a specialist, I, I'm not just injecting into the joint. I'm injecting into the ligaments. I want to strengthen those ligaments, provide stability to the area, inject various tendons, all these structures in order to provide stability and get the body moving correctly. But if we're not doing the work to rehab and to prehab the joint, then we're not going to get the best results. So when I see a patient, if they haven't had physical therapy, if they haven't been paying attention to their nutrition, that's the kind of stuff that I talk about leading up to any procedure that we may or may not do. And, and the truth is, most of these conditions, as you know, most of these conditions respond to physical therapy and nutrition alone, and patients are able to get better overall, you know? Um, what, what I do is really just a catalyst. And I've said this in, in other talks and interviews before, really what I'm doing is just a piece of the puzzle. It's really the, the exercise and, and taking care of your body. That's the main thing. Right. Absolutely. So if somebody is looking for that magic fix, they're looking for the magic pill, the magic injection, the magic wand, it's not there, right? <laughs> it's not there. And, and that's, that's the hard thing, right? Because there are people that are promising it. Um, and, yeah. and that's, that's, that's what I want to kind of spread is that there is a lot of people that are promising that magic pill. They're promising that, you know, you don't got to do any work. We'll do this and you'll regrow your, your knee. Right. But that's just not true. So, um, we got to hit things from multiple angles and, and I think that's important. How do people go about researching if, if they, they have been through physical therapy, they have been through, uh, the nutrition is good, and they're, they're thinking about, you know, this is the next step. I don't want to be considering surgery. I maybe do want to be considering some kind of a, uh, in, injectable procedure. How do they go about researching who to go to? This is a hard question um, because, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of good folks doing this. There's a lot of uh, not-so-good folks doing this. Um, I, I think that there are a few organizations uh, that are worth um, you know looking into. Um, I, I uh, full disclosure, I teach for uh, the Interventional Orthopedics Foundation. Um, that is an organization that's a non-for-profit, um, and we basically teach other docs how to do these type of procedures. Um, so the the Interventional Orthopedics Foundation website does have uh, a list of people that have taken the various different courses that we offer. Um, so that's one resource for sure. Yeah, if you let me have the link afterwards, I'll pop it in the show notes and then people can click straight through. Absolutely. Um, and then there's a few other organizations. Um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Medicine 
um, is another organization that focuses on regenerative medicine um, procedures. Um, uh, there, there is a network called Regenex that I am a part of um, that uh, treats, uh, trains physicians how to do these specific types of procedures and specific protocols. Um, so there's a few different resources that are available. Um, Google could be our friend or our foe. Um, I think uh, I think Google is actually a valuable resource. We just have to be smart in terms of how we use it. Um, so you know, looking up stem cells in whatever state or city that you're in is perfectly fine. But looking at that website and seeing, you know, are they offering every type of treatment under the sun for every condition under the sun? Right? Are they making claims like they're going to regrow cartilage and and heal 100% of their patients? Um, you know, what's the training of the physicians that are doing the treatments? Um, there, there are a lot of clinics that are chiropractic clinics that have a nurse doing the injections and that does not have any additional training on image-guided procedures for a specific area. So it's, it's some scary stuff sometimes. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you can find or, or look out for. How can people find out more about you? Sure. So uh, a few different resources. Uh, I'm on social media, on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all under the handle at Stem Cell Dr. Patel. Uh, my company website is uh, www.healthlinkcenter.com. And I, we can give you that information as well. And yeah, we can you know make sure that you have my contact information and everything. Sounds good. Um, so we've pretty much come to the end um, of the show, and I do have a couple of, of last-minute questions that I would like to ask you. Absolutely. What is your favorite book? Ooh, favorite book, um, Life of Pi. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I've not even seen the movie, but... <laughs> I haven't seen the movie. I haven't seen the movie, but the, the book was fantastic. Um, okay, I, I, I get that. It, my second favorite is going to have to be like a random textbook. So it's, <laughs> I think that's all you're going to get for now. And what, what are your hobbies? Um, right now, it seems like my only hobby is playing with my two-year-old and my four-month-old. Um, but sure. hands full a little bit. Um, I, I do like photography, drawing, snowboarding, um, and I, I, I miss more activities than I do. Is there anything I should have asked and didn't? I think you are really comprehensive. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. You know, I really appreciate you joining me for this. It's really given me a lot of food for thought. You've, you've given some great advice for people there. It's such a confusing area for a lot of people. Uh, and I think just listening back to everything that you mentioned, all the different things, that's going to be immensely helpful for a number of people. So thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Patel. Absolutely. No problem. It was, a, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy Los Angeles podcast, sponsored by Core by Design Clinical Pilates. To stay connected with the Stay Healthy Los Angeles community, visit www.stayhealthylosangeles.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Stay Healthy Los Angeles podcast.